Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. This episode is sponsored by Concept Foundry, a creative print production company who specializes in large print and bespoke print products. They've provided me with some outstanding printed backdrops and other printed material. So if you need anything to market what you do, I'd recommend Concept Foundry. In this episode, I'm talking with Joey Bartnett, a career criminal who committed a spree of violent armed robberies to feed his addiction to crack cocaine. When the law caught up with him, he was imprisoned, a place he'd been in and out of for most of his teen years and adult life. During his last prison sentence, he embraced Christianity, and on his release, he vowed never to go back to his life of crime. Now, clean of drugs and crime, Joey is keen to use his lived experience to guide others away from the journey he took. Let's just start by telling me a bit about you know where, where you come from and what life was like for you growing up, because that always sets the scene, doesn't it? It gives people a kind of, it contextualises what we talk about later. So just give me a, a brief potted history of what life was like for you as a young man and where you come from. Yeah, I come from um, a place called Tooting, which is in southwest London. I was brought up by my mum and my dad and um, two two older sisters. So I'm the, I'm the youngest of the family, the baby of the family. Um, we moved from Tooting when I was around uh, three or four years of age. So I've got vague memories of Tooting, uh, but, but we moved to a place called Streatham. Uh, which is in southwest London. As I was growing up, it quickly became apparent to me that um, my dad was in the army for most of his life, and he's very, very regimental, and he was very strict uh, around uh, around the family. Um, and them days, we used to get the belt. You know, when we was naughty, we'd get the belt. He'd put you over his knee and give us the belt. But um, 
I knew uh, my mum was ill from an early age too. So the early age, about three or four years of age, I was aware of my mum um, having Crohn's disease and um, thrombosis of the lungs. And my mum was only six stone and she was um, four foot 11. So she was a tiny little figure. And me being me being the only son, so I was the apple of my mum's eye type of thing, you know. Um, and I remember lots of argument between my mum and my dad as a child. And my mum met another guy through one of her brothers, which is my uncle's, and his name was John, John McLaughlin, and he was Irish. And my mum split up with my dad, and John McLaughlin, which is my stepdad now, moved in with, to our house. So this was going on backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards for a good good part of five years. Um, I witnessed quite a lot of violence um, around my dad and my stepdad um, at an early age too. You um, mean they, they were clashing or it was more domestic violence towards your mother? No, they was clashing. My dad used to have a guy at my mum, but he wasn't physically um, physically with my mum, but he was more mentally my real dad um, because he was army. He was very regimental. And wrong is wrong and right is right. He was one of them types of guys. Um, really, I mean, they didn't really gel from the, from the start. I don't even know how they got together because my mum my and my dad were to- totally two different people. Um, she married my dad um, and my dad left the army and come out. And that's when um, we moved from Tooting to Streatham. There was quite a few arguments amongst my mum and my real dad. And that's when my dad had left at that, at that stage. And my mum, I got with my stepdad, which is John, and he's Irish. She's from Northern Ireland, Derry. And my eldest sister, Pamela, she um, is 11 years older than me, so she had moved out by then. But I was left at home with um, my sister, Angela, which is just one year older than me, and m- my mum and now my stepdad, John. So we uh, I had a really good upbringing with my stepdad. Um, he treated me like his own, and we used to do things like going away on camping trips and going to parks every weekend, you know, we had all the best of uh, clothing, the best of push bikes. We had anything we wanted. Um, very, very loving man. And obviously my mum loved me to bits. Uh, so I come from a really good background in that sense, Raph. Um, what I learned as I, as I was getting a bit older, I was, as I was getting to around nine or ten, um, I learned that John, my stepdad, um, was a drinker. And the argument started with my stepdad and my mum. But my stepdad was a little bit more violent than my real dad because my stepdad started... Um, smashing the house up and throwing plates um, at my mum, uh, throwing cups up the wall. Generally, he's just, you know, terrorising us kids at that age, um, nine or ten. Was he hitting you physically as well? Not at that time, no. Um, but smashing the house up and being very, very violent around us. So they'd be arguing during the daytime and he was one of them. He'd bottle it up and he'd, he'd go work the next day. And when it comes to coming home from work, he'd go to the pub. So then he'd come home from the pub, say, after pub time, 11 o'clock. But um, in the meantime, before he got home, you had me and my um, elder sister, Angela, and my mum all waiting indoors for him, knowing what he's going to come out the pub like. And we was literally terrorised. When I say terrorised, I mean frightened out of our lives because we knew how violent he really was. Um, and there was rumours going about that, uh, you know, he, he used to stab people. Um, on a regular basis, he was very violent. He was a very well-known person all around um, the pubs in Tooting and Streatham as being a nutcase. But we, you know, my mum didn't know this at the time, and I, we certainly didn't know it. But he was never really, uh, he was never really violent. He was violent, but he was never physically um, violent towards my mum or me. But 
on one or two occasions, he did throw a cup and it hit my mum in the face and she had to have stitches. So this was an ongoing thing. And for probably four or five days out of each week, we would be indoors in one room, all cuddled up together, frightened out of our life, wondering what he was going to come out from the pub like. This went on until I got to about 13 or 14 years of age. I've joined school by now, but um, because of like what I'd seen at home, I felt a little bit different to the other kids. I couldn't get on with my work. I didn't like authority. I didn't like being told what to do. I was a bit of a clown in the classroom at the time. I just didn't want to be there. Um, I wanted to be with my mum because I know my mum had Crohn's disease and thrombosis of the lungs, and I didn't want my mum being on her own. I know I couldn't protect her at this, this age because I was only very small and skinny myself, but my mum was all I had, and we loved each other to bits. So I quickly got chucked out of that school, um, got put into another school, and this was a bit of a cycle now. Um, I've probably been to about three or four different schools by the age of, by the age of 13 or 14. So the, the, the domestic violence that you witnessed at home that shaped the character that you were becoming what was you at a young age as well as being a clown at school what was you getting into fights and exerting sort of violence amongst others so you were taking out your pent-up frustration and what you were witnessing at home into the school playground anyone would have thought so yes but unfortunately no I was a nervous wreck as a kid and I was bullied as a kid at school too. So I was bullied at home by my stepdad and I was also bullied at school. And that's why I, I think like, I've become even more naughtier at school because of that is how I was going to get accepted by being the naughty person at school. So, so by the time I got to around 13 years of age, um, I'd been kicked out of school. I was at home with my mum, John, and my sister, Angela, in Streatham. There was another argument. I don't know how it happened, but um, my mum got taken into hospital and my real dad come back into my life. He moved back into the house. So my stepdad moved out. My real, bad, my real dad moved back in. Whether he heard that my mum was really ill and us kids was with a, a madman, I don't know. But he'd moved back into the house whilst my mum was in hospital. We didn't really get on that well, um, but he was still my dad at the end of the day and I, I was frightened of him. So after, after a few weeks, there was a knock on the door, Raph, one day. And I was upstairs in, in my bedroom. I'll see a few male figures come into my house. My dad answered at the front door and let three people into my house. They walked into my front room. Two of them had white coats on and one of them was a police officer. My dad called me downstairs. Um, I went into the front room and I, they asked me to sit down. And I sat down and um, they explained to me that they had come from a psychiatric hospital in Epsom. It was called Longgrove Hospital. Uh, for the mentally insane, and um, they'd come to take me away. So basically, whilst my mum was in hospital, my dad had prearranged with this lunatic asylum, or whatever you want to call it, a nut house in um, Epsom, that he arranged for them to come and pick me up and get me put into their custody. Which How old was you at the time? 13. And what, what, what signs were there that you were mentally ill? My dad was making lies up about me, obviously, um, to get me sectioned. Um, but I wasn't violent, you know, I was naughty. Yeah, I was naughty. Um, and if anything happened down the street, I always got the blame. And it, nine times out of ten, it was me. Um, a lost child, um, Ralph. I was, proper, I was a lost child. They took me into um, the hospital and they wanted to do an assessment on me. 
Um, I'm still not too sure up to this day right now how they taken me in. I don't know how he done it. They definitely did not have my mum's permission, but he was a liar and he, he might have said that I was violent or I just don't know. I remember having an assessment with the psychiatrist or a psychologist on the first day there and they put, they put me on, into a ward with um, other patients. And in the dormitory, there must have been about 30 to 35 beds, um, 15 on each side or something like that. And uh, all, all kids of your age? No, no. I was, there was about three other kids and the rest of them was elderly. There was not many kids at all there. Um, maybe maybe five kids, um, but this was on one ward. So then you had you had other wards inside the hospital too. So in total, inside the actual hospital, there probably would have been about maybe 50 kids maximum. And how was you feeling at this time? I mean, you, you know, it sounds like out of the blue, you've been taken away and put into an institution and, and they're assessing whether you have mental health issues. I mean, how was you feeling? Can you remember? Confused, very worried. And by this time, they was injecting me with um, medication. So um, walking about like a zombie, to be honest with you, shuffling my feet. But for them to, for them to, and I don't know if this is the right thing, but I mean, for them to keep you in, despite the, the lies you say your dad told them to get you taken away, for them to assess you and keep you in, do you believe now as an adult that as a child you did have problems that needed addressing? No, no. What happened was, I'll, tell you, I'll get to that in a minute, Russ, but I, I, I don't believe that I did have any deep issues or mental or bad problems in that in that sense, no. Um, after a few weeks of being in, in Longgrove, um, I decided that I was going to escape out of this place and I didn't want to be here no more. And it was early hours in the morning. I had a pair of pyjamas on and I walked off of the ward and walked into the toilet or climbed, climbed through the window and I escaped from the building. And I got to Epsom train station, which is an overground train station. I got to Epsom. I, I don't know how I must have looked to other people or if anyone would have seen me walking down the road early hours in the morning with pyjamas on at 13 years of age. You know, um, thinking about it now, I can't really get me head around Still can't get mid round it, um, and I can't believe that I actually done it. And I can't believe that I'm actually here telling you the tales what I'm telling you today, Raf. Considering what they was trying to do to me in there, um, they was trying to lose me in the system, so to speak. And that is what my dad wanted, because the reason why he wanted that, Raf, because I was a threat to him, not as a violent threat, but I was a threat to him when it comes to the love between me and my mother. So mother and son, my mother was more interested in me as her son than giving him any love. She was giving me the love. This is what I've come to later on in life. This is what, what I think it, it is. Because my mum wasn't him giving him as much love as she was giving me. Um, he became jealous. And Quite an extreme thing to do, though, isn't it, from, from a parent, from a father, to, to break that connection between you and your mother, that he would go to such an extreme to have you sectioned off and put into a mental institution when, as you say... You were young and you were not ill. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable to even. I know it's hard. It's hard to relate to it, Raph. I know, but this is this is a dead honest truth. So I got to. I'll tell you the story quickly. I got to the train station. There was no trains running, so I had to wait for the train to come. Um, basically, I got on a train. I got back home, and by the time I got back home, my mum was out of hospital. I couldn't believe my luck. My mum was out of hospital, and my dad was gone. Did they not know what had happened to you? 
by now my mum had known yes um she was aware that i was gone and this is the reason why she chucked my dad out you know she, you've had my son put away you didn't have my permission you know i'm so glad she did see through right through him at that age because you know if it, if it would have carried on for, for many years later god knows what what he was capable of doing to me um Raph, do you know what i mean um my mum my mum got rid of him and um when I come home that morning, I knocked on the front door and my mum opened the door and I just fell into my mum's up mum's arms like jelly. I was cr- crying my eyes out. My mum was crying her eyes out. My sister Angela, which um, is very very supportive to me still today up to this point, um, I've got a very very big family network. Um, has got me through many of my troubles in life. But yeah, so I got home and um, the police turned up. The one of the doctors from the hospital had turned up. I had to go in front of the psychologist or the psychiatrist, a child's one, and he made me draw a family tree, which I'd done successfully. And the outcome of my diagnosis was um, I was very hyperactive as a kid. So that's what he diagnosed me as, an hyperactive kid with no mental health issues whatsoever because I was on the button, on the ball, and completely not stupid, clearly not stupid. Tell me tell me about the the first time... That, that you got in trouble with the police because that story you've just told is, is a very sad story, um, but it sounds like it resolved itself once you got into the arms of your mother. But but that wasn't sort of the end of, of your kind of experience with institutions. Tell me about the first time you got in trouble with the police and, and how that escalated and what happened to you thereon. So basically what happened, we've skipped a little bit forward, um, but we moved from two into Streatham and what happened in that house in Streatham was my mum and my stepdad had a big argument one night. My mum had a feeling and she said, we're not standing in this house tonight. We're getting out of this house. It had gone past nine o'clock, ten o'clock, and John hadn't come home. So we'd gone into one of our neighbour's houses to see what he'd come home like. Um, I'd fallen asleep. And a few hours later, I heard screaming. I heard a big commotion. Me and my sister and my mum, we'd all gone to the front of the house and we see blue lights, noticed all the fire engines, um, so John had gone in the house, poured petrol in, in, in all the rooms, uh, the top of the house, the bottom of the house, and um, threw a match in and walked out. So he set the house alight. Um, the house went up in like 150, 200 foot of flames, and the house was burned to the floor, down to the foundations. Was anybody in the house and injured? No, no one was in the house, um, luckily enough. I don't think John would have done it if we was in the house anyway. He wasn't that type. Um, he, he was evil, you know, and... By now, I've, I've witnessed him stabbing quite a few people. Um, he'd stabbed my dad, my real dad, um, with a sword, a machete. Tried to chop his elbow off. He'd done him down the side of the neck there. One day when he was coming to pick me and my sister up to take us out for the day, my dad, my stepdad ran out of the house, caught him with a sword and like done him with a sword. So I'd seen a lot of violence. So I was a very, um, although I had the love and I had a big family network, I'd still been, I was brought up different to other kids in that sense. How, how did it manifest itself? Because you talk, you know, extensively about your your dad, your biological father, your stepfather, and the experience that your mother went through, uh, and the various things that that you witnessed, and in particular, you, you know, the trauma of being institutionalised. But you haven't talked very much about who you are. I mean, this is kind of contextualising what what shaped you. But I asked a moment ago, how did you first get in in trouble with the police and and end up on this kind of spiral of of criminality that that saw you in and out of prison for the best part of your life? 
Okay, so once we've moved out of that house, obviously we've been burnt to the floor. We got rehoused again, um, and we got rehoused to a place called Streatham. Again, it was just around the corner, a place called Mitcham Lane. We had a three-bedroom house, and my mum and my stepdad, John, we had gone to work. He'd bought the house, so we owned the house. Um, so even what, after he burnt down the previous house, you, he was still with your mother? Yeah, she, yeah, he got 18 months. He went to prison for 18 months for arson, and um, he came back out again, and um, my mum took him back in again. I still can't get my head around the fact that my mum... My mum wouldn't leave John after knowing what he'd put us through, after what he'd put her through. Um, but she's still taking him back. So I still can't to this day understand why she couldn't get away from him. It it certainly wasn't out of fear or um, she was scared of any repercussions of him coming back because that would have never have ever been the case. Where we moved to this new house, Streatham, opposite my house was a set of flats and that was a council estate. And on that council estate, there was a, loads and loads of kids of my age. And I was 14 at this time. Um, and the kids, what I, what I was attracted to at the age of 14 was 17 and 18. Kids of my age, I didn't have no interest whatsoever in. Um, and they was into normal things. I didn't like doing normal things. I liked being naughty. Um, I liked being chased. I liked nice things in life. If I wanted something, then I was going to get it in one way or another. And I started joining the gangs and um, they were 17, 18. And, and by now, they were stealing cars and selling cars, breaking into houses, factories. And obviously where I just joined, you know, those throwing me through the window. I was game. You, you know, I was dangerous. I was vulnerable. Did they groom me? I'm not too sure whether it was grooming because it was my choice whether I wanted to go in, into it or not, Raph. But... Obviously, that's what I wanted to do. So I quickly um, got attracted to naughty, naughty blokes and I liked all the nice things in life. I liked being centre of attention and it quickly revolved into bigger things. Can you remember the first time you were arrested by the police and what that was for? Yeah, it was just stealing a car and we went out for a joyride. And the first car I nicked was a Mark III Cortina. Took all my mates out. Um, we got chased, smashed through a shop window. Caused thousands and thousands of pounds worth of damage. Got arrested for that. I remember my mum coming to the police station and picking me up. Um, I remember them putting me in the cell, leaving me in the cell for about seven or eight hours. It didn't frighten me. It didn't deter me. And I was getting arrested every week. Rough after that, I was getting arrested a few times a week, and I was going to court every. I was going to Ballam Juvenile Court every single month. By the time I accumulated quite a few offences up for um, criminal damage. Theft. I probably had about four or five different um, cases, and I went to Ballon Juvenile Court, and this was the first time I was put in, put into prison. Um, my mum came to court with me, but I'd been in court several times previously, and um, the judge basically gave me a, a slap on the wrist, and um, they put um, care orders on me. So basically, it was a residential care order. So basically, they could take me into care any time they wanted to um, because I had a care order on me, but because they knew I was safe, or they thought I was safe at home with my mum, and I had a big family network, they didn't think they needed to intervene to take me into care, because they knew I had a big family. So I remember going to court, and I remember the judge saying to, uh, saying to me, stand up, we're sending you to a, a HMP SEND detention centre for three months. And that was the first time um, I really cried. And they gave me the three months, they took me down into the, into the, the cells down the bottom there, and 
my mum was in the court. My mum broke down crying. My sister, uh, Angela, um, and my eldest sister, Pamela, and uh, we all broke down crying. I was in a bit, so I was in a bad way. I was petrified. I was scared. I let my mum um, visit me in the cells for about 20 minutes. My mum was trying to reassure me, but she was breaking down herself, you know, crying, um, because I'd never been taken away from her apart from that time when I got sectioned, and that wasn't down to her, um, and it was not in her hands. It was out of her power. So... Um, I was in a bad way, uh, Raf, really bad way. I remember getting into the back of the uh, transit van with about three or four other kids, and there was bars up the window, and I was sobbing, crying my eyes out. I was only small, skinny as a kid, really small. And I remember getting into the back of the minibus. They handcuffed me um, up to the bars on the window, and all, there was kids in, in, on my row and kids on the other row cuffed up, and there was two officers in there, and they had, like, peak caps on, and they was like screaming at us down at down their mouths and saying, You ain't gonna you ain't so hard now, let's see how hard you are when you get up to our prison now. And like torment frightening the life out of us as kids. And by the time we got to actually ASMP send, you know, I was a bag I was on the floor, crying my eyes out after what they just told us of what was gonna happen in there, how bad the place was and what we was gonna go through. I just got three months outside that in my head. You know, I've never left my mum. So you can imagine what I was like when I got in reception. I was crying, and um, one of the officers smacked me around the side of the face, literally smacked me around the side of the face, straight round in the face, really, really hard, put a big, big red mark on my face. He said, "You don't cry around here now. You've got to live. You've got to live up. You've got to live up to up to what you what you think you are on the street now. You're not such a hard boy now." And they were just pushing me from officer to officer, made us get in the, in the showers, hosed us down with a freezing cold hose pipe, resumed in reception for about three quarters of an hour, being abu- physically abused by the officers, being tormented, having the fear of God put into us about what was going to happen. As I come out of reception, I remember going, they give me a big big kit, a bed kit, and all my clothing, I had it in, in my arms like that, and it was coming up to me, chin up to there, and um, there's a big long corridor, and they call it the M1 corridor, and there was one screw down, one officer at one end, and there was another officer up, up the top end. And we was made, um, they give us our name, they give us our number, and we were told that every time an officer talks to us, we must address him with our, our name and our number and stand to attention um, and call him sir. Um, so basically, it was run like an army camp. It was torture. It was absolute torture. Um, and that's why they've done away with the detention centres, right? because there were so many parents complaining, putting complaints in about us kids being brutalised. They actually abolished them down to that fact of the reason of us getting beaten up in them places as kids. Is this what they used to call the short, sharp shock? The detention centres is, you know, because that's what it is. Three months sent to a detention centre for a short time, but that you're shocked by the experience um, and everything that happens is quite sharp um, in terms of getting slapped in the face and the way you were treated by, by the guards. Did it make a difference? I mean, you said it terrified you and you cried from beginning to the end. But by the end of that three-month sentence, who had Joey become? Had Joey become more vulnerable and lessons had been learned? Or or did it not make a difference to, to who you were? What it done to me was it, um, I met new links in there. I met new contacts in there. I knew by the time I'd come out of here, if I could get through this, then there's not much what was going to hurt me um, in life. It was that bad in them three months. If you could mentally and physically get through something like that, it didn't. It didn't deter me. It didn't frighten me. And if anything, it made me worse. 
because now I knew that if if I had to go there again, I knew what to expect and I was aware of what was going to happen. Um, so, no, it didn't deter me at all. And it spiralled out of control very quickly when I got released from there, actually. Come back on a manor and now all my mates and all the boys on the estate knew I'd just got out of jail. They knew what I was capable of. I was now living up to a reputation and it spiralled out of control from there, Raph, um, living up to that reputation, hitting new goals and reaching new heights. And it quickly progressed from from petty crimes to, to major crimes towards the end of um, my criminal um, background, you know. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about that then. So you came out at a, a young teenage. You know, how long was it before you were getting involved in serious crime? And did you go back to a detention centre or was that just kind of inevitable? Yeah, it was inevitable I was going to go back again. I went, I've, I've done um, another two detention, detention centres after the first one. And also I've done um, three years detained at HMP Felton. So three years detained means when you get a detained sentence, you've got to do every day of the sentence. I think I was 17. And what was that for? It was for a string of different burglaries, commercial burglaries, dwelling burglaries, um, I don't, a few ABHs fighting, a string of offences, Raph. There was probably about 15 offences there. By the time... I'd gone to court at this stage. Obviously, I'd been to detention centre a few times, um, and obviously the judge had looked at it, looked at my record, looked at me, and thought, "Look, we've got to stop him in his tracks. Um, otherwise, anything could happen." Because I've been to been to Ballstone Detention Centre a few times before I got the detained sentence. I joined the actual gang. What I got arrested with, Raf, towards the end of my sentence at the age of 27, and by the age of 27. I'd lost my mum, uh, my stepdad, my real dad. I was divorced and I had three kids. Um, and that all happened so quickly for me in life. I've lost my mum. You I've jump lost... forward slightly because at 17 years old, you got this three-year detention sentence and, and you went to prison, did the whole of the three years. So you've come out 21-ish. What happened between 21 and 27? Between 21 and seven, 27, um, I met a girl... We had we had two kids together, um, and had that three years where you said the judge knew they had to stop you. Did it have the impact that they hoped it would by stopping you in your tracks? Not really. No, I was still I was I was still messing about. I was still committing crimes. Um, basically, I joined um, the fairground. Um, a lot of travellers on the fairground. Before all this happened, I met a girl on the fairground, and. Um, I think I've met her when I was around 19 when I got out on a big sentence or something like that. So anyway, so I met, met, met the girl. We had two kids together. We was only kids ourselves, Raph. You know, I wasn't into settling down. I wasn't a settling down type. Um, and I was still messing about with other girls. And I was still committing crimes. And um, I was still messing about with my mates. So by the time I was splitting up with the girl, I moved in with um, a few of my friends, which was now my new gang members. There was uh, five or six of us living in this one flat, and we were bouncing off, we were bouncing off, off each other. My mum got cancer at the, when I was 28 years of age, and at the age of 29, my mum died in my arms of cancer. She had breast cancer, and it came back later on in life. It seconded me cancer, and um, by the time it went all around her body. So basically, me and uh, my two sisters were travelling backwards and forwards from, from London to visit my mum whilst my mum was on her deathbed waiting to die. And on the last week of my mum dying, 
obviously me and my two sisters stayed with my mum at her bedside and my mum passed away in my arms. What that did to me, watching my mum die, was it broke me. I was a broken man in every way, in every form you can ever imagine. And because I was so broken and I just split up with the girl I was with and the two kids, my mum had just died in my arms. I joined the gang straight away. Within the fir- first few days, I had an automatic pistol. You know, we had we had firearms, we had guns. And, you know, we was, it, it led on to bigger things. Um, we became prolific armed robbers in the gang of us, um, targeting banks, post offices and things like that. And to be honest with you, Raph, after watching my mum die, um, I didn't I didn't care if I died. I didn't care if I got killed. Um, and I didn't care if I killed anyone else neither. I was a broken man and I was a very, very, very dangerous man. My um, criminal activity became a lot, lot, lot worse. I did not care whether I got shot or whether I got killed or whether I killed anyone else. I was a dangerous man. And did you? Did you end up shooting someone, being shot, committing acts of violence? I mean, you talk about the armed robberies. I mean, and you talked about that being quite prolific in the gang that you were operating in. Um, were you ever caught? Did you end up going to prison for those firearms or robberies? Yeah, yeah. At the end of it, we did. Um, after I reigned for around three or four years. Um, but what happened was, uh, Raf was um, I got introduced to cocaine. And we was all partying, we was all living together, and the cocaine was just coming in and in and in and in and in. And I wasn't, we wasn't really getting the same high. Um, so after probably around three months of being on cocaine, um, sniffing hundreds of pounds a day each one of us, and obviously to get that, to get that cocaine, to get that money, we had to go out and we had to go and get that, we had to go and earn that, you know, by um any ways we could, which we did. Um, and the way we was doing that was um, we was going to front line in Brixton. Um, we was robbing other drug dealers, pulling knives out. We was pulling guns out. We was, you know, going through people's front doors, um, taking last parcels of drugs um, because we was, we was prolific and, you know, there was nothing stopping us. We was all bouncing off each other with dangerous men. We had a bigger reputation all around southwest London. That quickly turned from cocaine to crack. And that was the problem, crack. That ravish issue. We all like the pipe, we all like the crack. And it was fast money, quick money, and you had to you had to go out. By the time I'd actually hit a crack pipe, I was probably doing two to three hundred pounds of cocaine a day on my own, every day, with the boys in the gang. Someone in my gang, I can't mention their names, but someone in my gang knew how to free free base and wash cocaine up into crack. Um, with bicarb ammonia in a microwave and this took a matter of minutes and um, I got introduced to a crack pipe. I was age 28 years of age and I started smoking crack off the pipe. It started off like probably smoking 50 to 80 quid a day. It soon revolved really rapidly, very, very quickly, something what I can't explain to you, Raph, how quick it it gets old of you have crack and how quick it revolves into thousands of pounds worth of crack every day. Far more addictive in, in the free base crack um, form than it is in, in the cocaine form. So I think most people who, who, who read about or hear about crack cocaine know 
that that it's not just an addictive drug, far more superior than than cocaine on a par with something like heroin, but it also changes the character and personality of, of people. Now, you and your gang were prolific robbers, but under cocaine, it was probably fast paced. With crack, it was no doubt more about supporting that 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 addiction and did it get that bad i mean you talk about the amount of money you spent on it joey so i I suspect that you'd become addicted but how did it how did it change the character that you already were i was known as game um and I, i was known as never backing down but how it changed me was it turned me from being game to being ruthless or to being someone that doesn't care if they take someone's life, if my life gets took, that's how it changes you. To that scale and that bad, that's how it changed me into that type of man. At the end of my addiction, I was smoking, and this is no lie, £2,000 worth of crack every day on my own. And to get that money? To get that money, there's only one way you could get that type of money, because there's quite a few of us who had addictions, and there's quite a few of us in my gang and quite a few of us all together at that time, um, and we went out. We went out in a firm, and there was only one way you could get that money, and that was to rob banks, post offices, building societies, big armed robberies like that, um, security vans, uh, and things like that. So we started. Uh, we started robbing um, high street banks. Um, we was all tooled up. I had a nine mil gun. One of the other codies had a thirty eight. Another Cody had a pump action sawn off, and we had someone on the on the wheel. So basically, me and two other of my Codys, so three of us, was going into the uh, banks. Um, we was letting shots off into the roof, and um, putting it, putting our shotguns on the screen, and getting them to earn the money under underneath, and the money underneath, and the panic the alarms were going, you know. But we knew we had experience by now, so we knew we only had a matter of 30, 30 to 40 seconds inside there before we've got to hit the door and get on, get in the car and go and then change over. So it was quick money, you know. Um, we emptied as many kiosks in the bank as we could. If anyone was in the bank at the time, you know, they was made to uh, lay on the floor. I didn't actually threaten anyone as in putting a gun to anyone while I was doing the robberies, but I did used to, like, let shots off in the roof and blow the roof out especially if, if the postmaster or the bank master like, didn't want to hand nothing over. I was letting shots off in the roof. And and the money was, was good, I must admit. You know, we was coming out there. Was one, one time we was getting 30 grand. Other times we was getting 60s. And then we might get 10. And then we might get 8. But it was, that, was, that was the money what we was using to take drugs with. And that's the money we needed to take drugs with. Um, you know, did anyone try and stop us? Certainly no. And at that time... We thought we was invincible. We thought we'd never, ever, ever get caught because we was that good at what we was doing at that time. Um, you know, we'd come out of there, we'd have a car, and then a mile up the road, we'd have another car, and then we might have two mopeds or two bikes because I was good on, on bikes as well as cars. So, you know, we used to chop and change cars. Um, so what happened towards the end of it is, is this, Raph. Barnes um, Flying Squad and Tower Bridge Flying Squad was both arguing with each other over the jurisdiction of who was going to arrest these prolific armed robbers in southwest London. 
they both knew that there was a heavy firm of five onwards people going into banks, building societies and post offices on a daily basis all around South West London and the flying squad knew that they was getting robbed. They didn't have our names and they didn't have our DNA. They didn't have nothing whatsoever. All they had was our MO, which was our mapping offence. And we was moving um, around houses. So by the time I'd moved up to, um, climbed up the ladder right up to the top and I was like putting guns on the screen, taking money on demand ups, we was moving houses because we wasn't stupid. You know, we wouldn't stay in one place for too long, a few days at a time and we'd move houses. And there were plenty of people offering us like accommodation who wanted to join our parties. You know what I mean? We wouldn't take them out on bits of work or any robberies, but we'd certainly get them involved in our drug taking and partying in, in their house. So that's why we was moving around so much. I did get arrested at the end and I went to court and I received 12 years. One of my other co-defendants received 13 years. Another one got 15 years. Um, we had a we had a grass in our case. Um, he was a paid inf informer. He was working for the flying squad. He was put on us to bring us down. We never got arrested, come out of no robberies. But one day, we went round uh, one of our friends' houses who we used to party with, and I noticed uh, a bloke around my age, and he was uh, asleep on the couch. And I asked this girl who he was, and uh, she said she knew who he was. She said he come from her, her, her area. He's in trouble with the police. He's on the run. She's putting him up, and um, he needs fast money to get out of the area quickly because he's wanted. He's on life license because he's a lifer. He's been recalled back to jail, and he wants a fast bit of money to get out of the country. This was a story what this female told me. My other co-defendants didn't want to entertain him. They didn't like the look of him, and, and they said from day one there's a bad smell about him. I don't know what it, whether I was naive or whether I felt sorry for him because I've always been... I know I come across as a very ruthless, dangerous individual, but I've, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I cry. I've got feelings. And this, this bloke had a bit of a sob story. He gave me a sob story. Um, and this is how I met him. So the next morning... We had something to do, which we had been we watched a van for for a few weeks um, at the same time, on the same day. We'd had it under ready eye. We had it on observation, so we knew what we was going for. And this is why we went to this female's house to stay in her house that night, so that morning we could leave from her house and go and have this uh, this, this security van. What he was doing, I got I got sucked I got sucked in by this story so much that somehow I agreed to put him on the wheel and take him as a driver on this job, what he was doing. So my other codies who was with me at that time, they didn't they didn't want him with us, but I just said, look, he's, he's all right, he's safe. I feel sorry for him. He seems like one of us, you know, and I want to help him. We had, this, we had the security van. We had the box. It turned up. We had this boy, on, this bloke on the, on the wheel for us. So basically, we took all, we got away from the job. We took all our clothes off, we took our balaclava off, we put it all into a hold all, and I instructed the driver of this car to take the car to a scrap metal place, which was just around the corner from it in Croydon. Um, it is arranged by one of my friends that the minute this car hits a scrap yard, it's got to be crushed. And this, this I, I pre-arranged this. We got out of the car, 
me and my other two co-defendants, and because the alarm, the alarm bells and the panic buttons were screaming on the post office. Um, there was a big commotion there. We got away from it in the car with a driver, and we'd gotten out of the driver's car, and I said to the driver, take the car to the scrapyard, and we're going to go on foot, because we'd gotten out of our clothes. We had tracksuits on, and we was just walking over a, hack, over a bridge called Hackbridge. We could hear the sirens, and there was police whizzing past us, backwards and forwards. As we hit the other side of the bridge, all armed police, and there was a helicopter on the field opposite, and they put red dots all around, all around us, lay on the floor. This is armed police. You're under arrest. It was absolutely swarmed with police, armed police, SO19 police. And they arrested us and put us into uh, the police station for the armed robbery on the security van. They put us into high down prison under category A and the solicitor come up to see me and the way I looked at it was they didn't have nothing on me, that they haven't got no forensics, they've got no DNA, they got no description, they've got nothing on me whatsoever, I'm going not guilty. The solicitor unraveled a load of statements to me and he, he asked me to take the statements back to my cell and have a good read of them. And I took the statements back to my cell and I read them. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. The guy, what we'd taken on for the will, the guy what I felt, felt sorry for and I met him in that house, was actually working for Barnes and Towerbridge Flying Squad as a paid informer. And he was, he was put on us to take us down. By the time it went to court, uh, I was charged with seven armed robberies. We got that down to three on a plea bargain and I pleaded guilty to three armed robberies with firearms. I received 12 years. One of my, my, one of my colleagues got 13. Another one got 15. Um, another one got 19. Um, and the, the paid informer got six years. He still got six years. And was that the longest prison sentence that you got for all the crimes that you'd committed? Not just these robberies, but over the years? Yeah, I mean, over the years, I've had numerous different sentences, like three years, 18 months, two years. You know, it mounts up to 35 years, Raph. Um, so you've goal. been in and out of prison from the age of sort of 14 up yeah. until you were a grown man, 35 years. Of- Late 40s when I stopped. The last time... So was this your last sentence when you did got this 12 years, you went away, come out, that wasn't your last sentence? No, no, I come out... But I was under Category A conditions on that sentence. Um, I've met a load of people. I've met a load of links. I've been around, you know. I've done all the circuit jails, all the dispersals, um, Full Sutton, Long Larton, Franklin, Whitemore. And I've come out. How did you do your time? Did you just keep your head down, survive jail and get out? Was you still on the drugs crack while you were in prison? I mean, how did you do your time? I've done my time by playing up. At the beginning of my sentence. Um, so quite subversive, quite anti-prison, anti-authority like you were when you were a kid. Hitting the screws, knocking the screws out, um, getting sent from one prison to another, to, to another, getting ghosted, being bent up, having my wrist broke. I, I was proper anti-authority. Most of your conflict was with the screws, the prison officers, rather than other prisoners. Yeah, yeah, it was mostly with screws. I was anti-authority. Um, I hated screws. I hated anyone telling me, telling me what to do. And by the time I'd gotten this 12-year sentence, you know, I'd done quite a bit of bird previously, so I was pretty well known um, in the system. I was notorious. Um, to be, I was a tattooist in there. Um, I made a tattoo machine up, 
and um, I've become a tattooist in there. So I was very, very, very well known. Um, I can see you've got quite a few tattoos yourself. Did you do them yourself while you were in prison or are they a combination of inside and outside? A combination of inside and outside. Um, actually, there's something which I, I do regret now later on in life. Um, and that one on the side of my face there, if I had the money and I had the, the funds to get it off, then believe me, I'd get it off. Um, Does it symbolise something? It's a bit of a difficult question, that. It doesn't symbolise a gang. But what it does symbolise is don't fuck about with me. Don't cross the line with me. And it represented the way I was living my lifestyle at that time. That's why now I'd like later on in life where I've settled down and I'm happy and I'm drug free and I haven't committed no crime since 2010. That's why I'd like it gone now. Because every time I look at it, it reminds me of the person what I was years and years ago. But then the flip side to that is, as you've just said, it's the person that, that you was. And that can be a reminder of who you are today. And, and who are you today? So you've described, you know, in and out of prison, 35 years overall, violence in and out of prison, being involved in gangs, you know, you know being ravished by, by crack cocaine um, and, and your addiction to, to supporting that habit. When did your life change? At what point and what happened to make you realise that enough was enough? Now, often it's age, isn't it? You kind of hit an age where you just can't keep up anymore. But was there something more profound in your life, Joey? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was after I got that big 12-year sentence, Raph, and I'd gotten out on that sentence, so I still had a little bit of licence left, but I'd got back to my old ways. And now I can't get my head around the fact that after I'd done that sentence, I knew I was on a second strike. And the judge actually said to me, when he passed sentence to me, you know, you're a danger to the public. The public need a very, very long rest from the from the likes of people like you and your gang. I'm going to make sure you're a changed man by the time you come out. He, you know, when he's passing sentence to me, he said all this to me and it didn't mean nothing to me. Yeah, when I come out in that sentence, from that big sentence, I did fall back into... Um, my old ways but um i can't actually say what i was doing because you know I, um, I i didn't get arrested for what i was doing um but what i did get arrested for which was a blessing in disguise was a, a commercial burglary on a factory and i got three years and that that is what changed my life that three-year sentence because by the time i got that three-year sentence i sat back in the inner cell in wayland doing three years and i i said to myself you're so lucky to get this three years and that was going over me in my head what the judge had said to me you know if you ever come before us again for any crimes like this we'll make sure you never see daylight again I've actually got that in my in my files what he said to me on his summing up you know he, he, how old was you when you got the three years so when I got the the three years I was uh, it was in 2007 it was in 2007 so I'm 53 and whilst I was on that sentence I don't know what made me and I don't know what pulled me to it, but there was a course being run in there called the Samaritans course and it was a listener's course. And I quickly joined the Samaritans and I joined the listener's course. It was a three-month course and I took so much out of it um, because I've always cared about others. I've always been a great listener. Um, I've always been a great understander. I've always had feelings. You know, I've got a big heart and people have, I've noticed people were reaching out to me 
on that sentence. Whether it's because of like I'm old school, whether I've worn a t-shirt, whether I'm a great listener, whether it's because I've done so many courses in jail and I've got all the I have ticked all the boxes and and answer all the questions, you know, I've done many courses. Um, so I took to this listeners course and I've done this and they've used me as um, suicide prevention in, in, in this prison. And I was going to cleaned up by now. Had you, you know, you're off the drugs, you, you know, you've gone through the therapies and you were no longer dependent on crack or cocaine no, or any other drug. I was completely off everything. And I was fine. And, and did that, did that manifest itself when you was in prison? Prison helped you kick all the habits that were driving your criminality on the outside? No, what it was, was the fault of getting a, getting a life sentence. What that judge said to me, um, and it was going round in my head, you know, if, if you carry on now, you're never going to see daylight. Um, and, and then I started thinking, because I was clean now, away from drugs, then I started thinking about my family because, you know, I've hurt so many people in my family um, where I've been away for so many years and I've got such a loving family. Um, you know, I started thinking about my family and, and I've I become a prison listener and um, the prison was using me as suicide prevention and on numerous occasions um, I was I was brought out of my cell early hours in the morning um, to people I slashed their wrist and I just wanted someone to listen to and I used to sit in their cell for hours and hours listening to them um, and they was inspired by listening to me and things like that and I got I took so much out of it the satisfaction what I, what I took out of that was unreal that it, it felt better satisfaction than any drug or any robbery I'd ever done the feeling what I felt when I was helping other people was on a different scale on a different level and the vicar of the prison noticed this um how, how good a character I turned into, he quickly put me on to um, a course in prison called the Alpha Course, which is a Christian course. And I completed the Alpha Course and I got baptised um, and I got baptised as a born-again Christian and I got released from that sentence. And I was only out of prison for about three or four days when um, I'd met my missus, who's still with me now, Sam. So I was fresh out of jail. When the iron was when the iron was hot, she she struck it straight away with me. She caught gold. <laughs> so, so did I have that. Now I've been through so much. I've been married. I've done so much bird. I've lost so many people, and I've started to fall in. I've started to really fall in love with this girl Sam. I was with. Um, I started to have strong feelings for her. She had been through. Um, she had a very good upbringing. Like perfect family mum and dad at home and eldest sister um she what she wasn't a criminal um she actually went to college she worked in a recruitment agency as a manageress and she was on a totally different scale she wasn't criminally minded so how we gelled we're still not we're still not quite too sure but we're but still they say into- opposites attract you, you know you you mentioned you know your your mum and your dad well, like chalk and cheese, but that's often what, what the attraction is. You know, you are a little bit of a bad boy. She's a good girl. You know, there is that, that magnetism between the two of you. I, I also note that you wrote a book about your life. Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. Um, I wrote the book with intentions of when, when I want the, the public to read it, I want them to think, you know, I want it, I want it, to, I want it to inspire them. Um, and I want them to read the type of lifestyle what gangs have and what happens when you're on drugs. Um, and I didn't want to um, glamorise crime. And that's the reason why I wrote the book, was to let people know um, the real truth 
of what really happens. And what's the underlying message? I get that. And, and what is the message? That crime doesn't pay, that you can't take away your life experiences, but you can definitely shape your own future based on your your experiences or your life's journey. I mean, where does, I, 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 and I call this podcast Second Chance because it, it can encapsulate so many different things. What, what does the second chance mean to you? I mean, they say a leopard can't change its spots, but you know, I've proved that I've proved that completely wrong. Um, because one of my um, very, very, very good friends, um, I don't know, if I'm allowed to mention him on here, Raf. Am I allowed to mention names? It's entirely up to you. You know, one of my very good friends, his name's Noel Razor Smith, and he's the, inspired me. You know, um, he's written books. He, he's he's done so many great things, amazing things, and he spun his life around. And, and he, know, just for, for those listening, he himself was an ex-prisoner who now runs the Inside Time, which is a prison publication all about um, life inside prison, the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm actually working with the Inside Times at the minute um, with Razor and uh, John Roberts um, of the Inside Times. And they actually done a, a really, really good article on me um, on the last three months edition. I've actually got it. Um, I'm quite popular at the minute, but this time around, Raf. I'm popular for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. There's such a change in me. There's such a transformation. It's just unbelievable how someone like me can change from that to this. And to be here telling you, sitting here talking to someone like yourself, a legend, you know, um, and also someone must be there themselves in prison, you know, and, and, and witnessed what goes on in prison, you know. Um, it's not easy in prison, but to... To, tra- to change your life around, you know, it's a very hard, very hard thing to do, Raph. But, you, you know, I had to um, ask, ask myself a, a few serious questions and, you know, go back to a drawing board and just say to myself, you know, you either not call it a day now, you know, and change. Now you've got the opportunity. You've met, you've met a lady which will love you for what you are, not, not what you've been, for what you are now. So you can either change now and you know, make a difference or you can go back to your old lifestyle. And I just think now it's my turn to give back to the community what I took out of it years ago. Um, and it's only right, you know, and this is why I feel it's right to do all these voluntary things and to put to get my story across because, like, this is what I want to do. I want to inspire people. I want people to listen to my story and, and you know, just remember – Crime is not glamorous at all, and it all ends in tears, um, and it ends in prison. And work, when you're in prison, you lose your you, you lose your name, you become a number. You know, you lose your pride. They strip everything away from you, and it's not you what it affects all the time. It's the ones you leave behind too, your family while you're in prison, doing all them years away. You know, so it wasn't just me I was affecting. I was affecting all of my family. You know, because. When I was a Category A prisoner, I was, like, getting shipped to so many different prisons. It was hard for, like, my family members to, like, get there half the time, Raph. Do you know what I mean? So I went years and years and years without visits, and I wouldn't put my family through it. I didn't want to put them through it, Raph, you know. Um, so I've made such a big change. It's, I've actually shocked myself on how far I've come, and the journey what I'm on at the minute is undescribable. The buzz what I take from, from like, Telling my story and meeting people like you is amazing. It's absolutely amazing, man. And and that is so good to hear. And and it, it, it's such a positivity. I mean, you, you talk about the effect it had on you know your loved ones, 
And do you now regret and are you remorseful for the fear that you instilled in people when you were pointing that gun at them, demanding money? Do you know, do you know what, Raf? I'm glad you brought this up because, you know, I didn't want to end this story on people thinking, look, you know, I haven't got no remorse. I actually suffer with PTSD. I've been diagnosed it from the doctor. Um, I'm on medication for it too, for PTSD. And remorse, you know, I, I, I still cry today over things what happened 20 years ago. Um, and I still today question myself, you know, how, why I could do things like that and how and why I could treat people the way I treated people years ago. It, it has a massive knock-on effect on me later on in life. Um, and please don't for ever one minute think that, you know, I haven't got no remorse because I'm full of remorse. And if I could meet every one of my victims, what I've, what I've had over the years, then I would gladly meet them, you know, and sit down with them on a level and try and like explain to them, you know, what life I was leading and, you know, how I was at that time and what I'm like now, you know. Um, but yeah, I've I, I plenty of remorse, left, plenty of it. Well, it's good to hear that. And it's great to know that what you're trying to do, um, which is one of the things I try to do, and other people who have worked or lived or experienced the space we have, is to inspire, especially the, the, the younger generations, that, you know, getting caught up in this is not glamorous. You know, we see it all the time, young kids thinking they have to take a particular persona or, or character or, you know, sometimes the glorification of, of the wrong is is not a healthy thing because, as you say, it ends in death, prison or, or desperate, you know, acts that ostracise you, isolate you. Um, and although it might be, you know, quick gains in the eyes of people who might look up to you, it, it's nothing but destruction um, for, for most people um, and, and it spirals out of control beyond your control and it affects so much and so many different people. So, look... Thanks so much for, for sharing your story with me. And like I say, my final question, what does second chance mean to you? Are you living your second chance? Did you take your second chance? Are you embracing the second chance, Joey? Um, I, I believe I was given the second chance uh, by the grace of God. As I said, I'm a born-again Christian and I have a lot of faith and um, I study the Bible and I pray on a daily basis. Um, and I believe I was given a second chance by God. Um, I also believe that... My mother is looking over me and guiding me in life. And, you know, I just wished, hoped and prayed that she was here today to see like what type of a man I've turned into and how proud she would be of me today. For all those um have arguments with their family and fall out and they don't speak for many years, you know, you must realise you've only got one set of parents. And so once your mum and your dad is gone, they're gone forever. You've got to literally... Make them proud while you can and when you can, because otherwise you will suffer with it later on in life, like I suffer with it now. Um, I just wish and hoped my mum was still around to make, for me to make her proud, Raf. And have you been able to rebuild the relationship that broke down with your ex-partner and your children? Is that back on track? Yeah, and I did start seeing uh, my kids. But it's, it's it's a totally different it's a totally different ball game, Raf. Um, basically, um. My son is now 27 or 28. It's not nice for me to say it, but um, he's followed my he's followed my footsteps. Um, he's not the same type of a person what I was because he's tried to drag me down with him. They've uh, they've caused me nothing but um, misery later on in life, and I've had to make some very very hard choices 
to leave them behind and forget them and carry on with the life that I'm leading with my missus today, love. And that's all I want to say about them, really. They became a, um, a bit of a nightmare to me later on in life. Um, tough, tough decisions. Very, very, very tough. And, you know, it's, it affects me. It, it still affects me today, you know, um, having to make them tough choices. Um, what, what do you have planned for the rest of today? What does the rest of the day entail for you? The rest of the day is um, I'm going to go shopping with my missus um, in a bit. And we've got to take the dogs out for a run around the back because we've got two dogs. I don't know if you can see. Um, I've seen them both jumping around. Yeah, <laughs> they look like they're having a getting them off the bed and taking them out is going to be a challenge. They look very relaxed. God, yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. So basically, I'm um, in and out. You know, I'm, I'm very busy. I'm working on my new book, Raph. I'm trying to get the words put in. I'm up to I think fifty thousand. So I want to get up to about one twenty. The second book is pretty difficult because of uh, where I've put quite a lot into the first book. I didn't want to put the same stories in the second book as I put in the first book. So um, the second book is more about remorse, PTSD, what I'm like today, uh, what my future holds. Uh, and the first one's like my autobiography. I've got my first one here. I don't know if you can see it. It's upside down. I can. A South London Ballstall Boys Towels, Joey Barnett. Yeah, people should get out there and, and read it. I'm sure it will inspire many as well as educate and inform, which is what it's really about, isn't it? Awareness. Awareness. Thank you so much for sharing your story and I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks for your time, pal. Thank you very much for coming onto your platform and allowing me to tell my story on your, your platform. You are an absolute legend and if I can help you in any other way, please don't hesitate to ring me up. You take care. Crime as Joey contests does not pay. Prison is often the end game for most but it can be the rock bottom that springs individuals to a new beginning. Well done, Joey, for turning your life around. This episode was sponsored by Concept Foundry, a specialist printing company that can provide all you need to market your services and promote your brand. Thanks for listening to this episode, and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast, If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. You can contact me at A Reporter on Twitter or Instagram. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.